Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Have you ever considered if you are overstressed or just under-recovered? How do you know? And how does it affect your performance? Today we discuss the stress recovery cycle. We cover ways to actively reset your recovery, dumping unnecessary tension and tone, risk and readiness, and using movement as your gauge. So kick back and relax for this episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Greg, we talk about exercise and getting people, you know, to reach their goals, lose weight, live a you know longer, healthier life, whether you're an athlete, perform better. It really comes down to balancing how much you are stressing the system and how much you are allowing the system to recover. And in my opinion, what I have found working with different, you know, from, from youth all the way up through some elite athletes, it's much more about allowing them to recover. That's, the, that's kind of the trick sometimes. I remember uh, you and I were working with Nike way back. We both flew out there. We were giving these sports medicine talks. And it really, <clears throat> I think in the science and the professional world, it's a no-brainer. I mean, we don't talk to strength coaches that aren't looking at some region of recovery. I was talking to a uh, um, college, D1 college strength coach, that is obsessive about weighing all his athletes. And he'd get them at the beginning of the season, but really it's between Friday and Monday because he said if weight is way up or down when they're not being stressed, like after the game, weekend, you're going to party, alcohol's going to bloat you, you get a little sick, <laughs> basically bad lifestyle is going to render you greater standard deviations up and down from the weight you're supposed to be playing in. So I think great coaches from way back to John Wooden's day all the way up to present day have always wanted to make sure their athletes were starting from a homeostatic, uh, a balanced state. Now we're going to dump stress, skill drills, competition-like stuff, and hopefully you will recover. But if we can still see the stress on you that we caused today three days from now, your bigger problem is recovery. And, and I don't hear a lot of that conversation when we're talking about correcting movement. People just want the corrective exercise. They want the movement trick. They want that. And I, I was just sort of meditating on this a while back, thinking most of the questions I answer as a lecturer are, how do I stress this person? Now, they're not saying that. They're saying, how do I correct T-spine mobility? How do I get ankle mobility to hold through a competitive week? And they're always asking these things, but the answer is always the dispensing of a different type of stress, not what are you going to do to rest, regenerate, and recover? Well, today, it is so easy, especially for the elite and professional athletes or the elite strength coaches, or let's just say the you know higher-end individual um, to monitor their recovery because of all the devices and technology that's a lot, that's around. I mean, you know, you walk into a professional sports arena now or a professional sports uh, strength coach, and they're looking at their computer and looking at all the data that they got coming in about recovery. And then the coaches have a better understanding of why that's important is they know that if they are borderline, if they're not recovered properly, then that probably needs to change how they practice and how they perform because what is occurring is they ultimately know 
that if you are not, if you are under recovered, your injury risk is probably elevated. Now, that's where we are. That technology is allowing us to, to get all that information, but it still goes back to, okay, it's that balancing act. And that balancing act is really less about science, more about art. No, I, I, I definitely think so. And yet, we can use this science artfully, right? I mean, you can use your iPhone to create an amazing movie, or you can just look at it all day, entertaining yourself. So sometimes I think that's what we do with wearables. We get a little OCD on the feedback. And ever since I've been wearing an Aura Ring or a Garmin watch, I try to call my sleep before it tells me how I slept. And I've learned to take naps when I feel, it, it, literally, when I used to feel my energy fade in the, in the end of the day, I'd be reaching for a cup of coffee or a stimulant. Right, not realizing the the signal of a twenty minute cat nap will do this in a more sustainable way, and it won't jack up your sleep. So uh, we've all got to learn how to either stress ourselves more correctly or recover ourselves more correctly. And I've come off twenty five years of answering questions about how to stress myself correctly when most of my major personal mistakes are in recovery. <laughs> my aura watch never tells me to get more activity. Uh, I mean, my aura ring never tells me to get more activity. I'm maxing that out most days. It tells me a lot that my state of readiness is down. And so back a billion years ago, when I was cutting my teeth as a young physical therapist, Paul Hughes, who was the manual therapist that really got me thinking outside of the box, trained in Norway, uh, trained in the UK and a lot of different places and swore by saunas just as a, you know, so I have a sauna in my home. I've seen a lot of sports teams. I've seen a lot of military use sauna. This is active recovery. This isn't just laying in a chair. And I'm not just talking about better sleep. I'm talking about there are so many different things you can do to reset your recovery. Wim Hof talked about the cold plunges. And we know there's huge physiological resets that we can have that aren't just based on a butt kick and boot camp exercise. You can have cold showers, you can have cold plunges, you can have saunas, you can have steam rooms, you can have deep tissue and, and, and massage work. Um, you can foam roll, but if it's not solving the problem in two months, it probably won't. But there are all these things we do for active recovery, but then how do you measure that? Because we know how to measure movement. And one of the things we've been thinking is, you don't need a separate measurement for recovery. If this is your movement baseline and I recover you better and you were poorly recovered, you'll actually have a few better movement signals. I think we pick up a lot of those on balance tests because what you were saying about inefficiency and fatigue and poor recovery is in athletics and in, with some of our military operators, there's something that we never talk about, but it is undermined every time you're poorly recovered or overstressed, and that's your reaction time. And it means everything. And so when you start looking at the injuries in athletics, a lot more fourth quarter injuries are going on and we blame it on fatigue and stuff, but what's the fatigue doing? It's disrupting your movement thought and your movement expression because reaction time, compensation, poor mechanics, poor proprioception, right? Poor visual scanning, all this stuff comes together and it just starts eroding. And the more inefficient you are, the more it erodes. So, you know, we're using movement right now as both a signature for better recovery and um, better choices in exercise and stress. And it works the other way. 
you're poorly recovered, we're going to see it somewhere in your movement signature. I don't need reaction time uh, and force plates to so do you that. Met, you mentioned balance and another test that I know that some of the um, you know major league uh, baseball strength coaches have told me or performance directors have told me they use is grip strength to see oh, if, heck yeah. you know. So really what you're testing when you're testing balance and grip strength is not what a lot of people would like to say. Well, you're just looking at you know, their stability or grip strength. You're looking at their strength. No, you're checking their neurological system. You are. And there's very little that you should be able to do to change your true grip strength or your balance signature in a single session. And so when that is changed in a single session, I want our listeners to understand you're probably unburdening a system. You're taking an unnecessary obstacle out of the way. So what you're really expressing is closer to your natural state of play, your natural state of mobility, stability, reaction time, or balance. So when we see these quick fixes with a corrective, like we will do rolling on the ground and then stand somebody up and they will have a forward reach or a motor control screen or a Y balance test that looks a little better. The thing that people ought to be scratching their head is, Everybody knows if I went over to a balance beam for five minutes and came back, I'd probably post a better balance measure. But if I'm not even on my feet and I do something to simply reorganize my system and it expresses better balance, I think we de-inhibited or de-burdened the mechanism in a, in a very good way. The fact that it was burdened in the first place makes me want to unpack why are you carrying so much unnecessary hamstring tone, trap tone? Why are you doing abdominal bracing when you don't have to? Why aren't you able to diaphragmatic breathe when you're rolling? You know, things like that. So we see a lot of mobility problems that aren't soft tissue problems at all. It's tone. It's tension. It's basically bracing yourself against the world because a lot of your stabilizers don't work. All right, you, you said something right there, and let me, let's back up a little bit. So if you have a person who has a balance problem, and you just said you could go work on a balance beam and it improves your balance, or you could roll and improve your balance, why would you choose rolling over a balance beam? Because I think practicing the test is self-serving and not sustainable. Whatever you gained in the balance warm-up will be quickly lost. But many times, if we reorganize you below balance, see, when you're on the balance beam, you're already probably bringing a bad pattern, and you're either going to have to fail a lot and overcome that, or you might stress you even more. So if I'm testing you at this level, and then I turn around and let you practice at this level and retest you, I sort of lose the validity of the test. But if I go in below that, I could say sit and meditate for a few minutes. And it makes your balance better. I would say your poor balance in your first test was probably due to breathing and tone and maybe some performance anxiety or something like that. It doesn't matter what you do. If you can do a few of these things to make balance or grip better in a short amount of time, they came in burden. They came in They tense. came in overstressed. Right. They didn't or, come in tight. They came in tense. I've heard you different. say this. Overstressed or under-recovered? I, What's the difference? I can't wait to use that for the next live audience I'm doing. Because like, all right, there's two, two states that can make you move poorly. If you're under-recovered or overstressed, which one are you? Because I'm going to make people pick one. It's almost impossible. It's almost one of those trick questions where if, if you think you're under-recovered, then what's your excuse? 
If you think you're overstressed, what's your excuse? How will you, you know, negotiate this? But the neat question is, why wouldn't you start with recovery? If, if you can get a wearable feedback as quickly as we can nowadays, and you can't get your heart rate variability into an acceptable range, if you can't post good sleep numbers, if your O2 sat isn't good, quit, quit expecting something to change. But if you're, if you're, let's say, under-recovered, and you said focus on recovery, that doesn't mean you're not exercising and you're not being active. And I think that's the misconception. Working on recovery doesn't mean you're going to go sleep more or just go sit more. It could mean you just try something different. Well, you, you, you nailed it. People used to work on function, but there was no baseline for function. So I've been doing functional exercises for 15 years. And what did we see when we got, got the movement screen kit out? This, this, no, you've been working with lightweights and bands, not heavy lifting. It looks functional. It felt functional to you, but functional means transferable. If I, that's what rolling is. Rolling is functional for balance because a rolling situation right here, truing up your rolling. Now, hold on. Let me, I, I, I hate to interrupt you because I know, I, I know how you are. Let's make it clear. Rolling is not foam rolling. No, 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 no. Rolling on the floor, and we do, we call it segmental rolling or log rolling. Like baby rolling. And the reason we go back there is when it comes to human movement, that's about as low as you can go. So we don't have a rolling test, right? I mean, we can test that, but then we've got to almost go into your spine and work out something to reset that. But rolling was the first form of locomotion you ever did. And believe it or not, uses a lot of the same core and low back muscles that are necessary in single leg stance. And the reason is when you roll on the floor, front to back or back to front, you roll around an axis. You create an axis that is not both feet. You pick one side and roll across it. That's what you do when you step. You pick one side and step past it. So believe it or not, the lowest form of walking motor programming that we can work on is rolling. Now, when does rolling not work? When you got so many mobility problems, you can't roll. And so that's when we foam roll or do soft tissue, but we at least get you to where you can roll, and then we look for that signature. I think one thing that, that we've used to say in the past is this is not something that, that you or I came up with. This has you know, been well, I would say, defined somewhere else. I can't tell you where. <laughs> but when you start talking about rolling, and, I, and I'll bring this to stress and recovery, when people have difficulties <clears throat> rolling, get it out there, Greg. People have difficulties rolling. We get them down the ground. It's more of an awareness drill. You know, can yeah. you do it? What do you recognize? But it, if someone has a lot of difficulty rolling, many times they're in a high threshold state. They are. And that high threshold state means you're, again, under-recovered or in a high stressful situation. And the one people, the group of people that, that when I get them here and I get them, you know, do a movement screen and they tell me that they're runners, endurance runners, I will guarantee you they're going to have problems rolling. And when you find a runner that doesn't have problems rolling, you know they're doing it right. And they're, they're pretty good, too. Meaning, Because runners a, are also overstressed. They are. Or under-recovered. So, and I would say the middle performance runners are probably the most injury-prone group. Beginning runners start and stop all the time. But it's that middle group of runners that post a lot of unnecessary tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, just biomechanical problems. I think people who really get into running and get past that 
start recognizing that running is not a complete activity for my moving system. And so they do supplementary work and it makes them better runners. And if it doesn't make them faster, it makes them more sustainable and durable. And is that supplementary work a way for recovery for a runner? Exactly. That's what it is because Greg Rose even said this with golf. Golf's not good for you. The golf swing is from one side to the other and never goes in reverse. It's very asymmetrical. Um, it puts a lot of torque and stress on your spine, way more than you think. And it's because of the speed, not the weight of the ball and the club. Um, and, and runners are the same way. So everybody who has that activity you like must realize it's probably not a complete activity. And I got to do a lot of supplementary work just to participate in the activities I want. But recognizing that and recognizing what changes my state of readiness is really good. You hit the nail on the head when you said not all exercise is here to stress you so you bounce back to greater performance. I've used simple things like our toe-touch progression, just dumping that posterior chain tension. And I tell people that aren't exercisers, do this before you go to bed and do it before you leave the house. What do you mean by that? Well, you were just here and you couldn't touch your toes and we did this little thing and now you can. So we know it won't take but five minutes to get there, maybe less. I need you to do that before bed and before you leave the house in the morning. Well, why is that? Well, you can dump this tone and tension before you go to sleep. And then if you acquire any or some of it comes back, at least you start the day at the baseline. About five days in, most people reclaim a lot of that Uh, forward bending, hip hinge mobility. But that posterior chain tone, I don't know what's causing it. It could be your dog, your kids, your job, the traffic, your position at work. All I know is this is unnecessary tension and you don't need it to live. You've just been living with it. Now, my athlete who's a runner and can't touch their toes, that toe touch progression is great for them before bed in the morning, but it's their warm-up and cool-down after the run because the run, even though it may be great for their brain and their endorphins and dumping the stress and leaving it on the road, they're going to probably have some impacts and bracing and high threshold that they need to, to scrub off. So I've always tried to explore your mobility while you're doing things that should naturally stabilize you, letting you know that your stiffness is not a solution to poor stability. You got to have a toe touch and be a runner. You got to have a deep squat and swing kettlebells. You can't have one or the other. Swinging kettlebells is great for posterior chain strength. Owning your deep squat and not losing it because you gain that is very important for your longevity, your balance, your gait, and your overall functional health. So using movement now is an indicator of both better recovery and better lifestyle exercise and activity choices helps because I didn't realize this when we first got into movement screening. You will alter your movement in a measurable way, Whether and, and balance is one of the best ones because it's using your mobility and stability simultaneously. It's not just standing on one foot. I love the, 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 what we're doing with the slide box where you're dynamically showing your, your balance and your symmetry. And taking that baseline in clinic helped me become a better spine therapist, looking, taking a balanced signature before and after, maybe some dry needling in the spine or a neck manipulation or something like that, and seeing that the rehab can unburden you as much as maybe a breathing exercise or just doing some Turkish get-ups. 
So if somebody says, are Turkish get-ups good? I love them. Sun salutation, good. I love it. But if it changes your balance, I love it even more. If it changes your symmetry, I love it even more because you just found out something you like doing that's also very corrective without having to focus on technique. As a healthcare professional, most of your patients likely walk through your door already experiencing pain. The SFMA is your initial assessment and provides a differential diagnosis that leads to more efficient treatment. And now it is easier than ever to get certified by signing up for one of our SFMA live virtual courses. We offer SFMA Level 1 and 2 virtual courses online, guided by a live instructor who will take you through the entire process. You'll be able to ask our team questions in real time and watch instructors work through live models throughout the day to be sure you leave with a clear understanding and the ability to start implementing the SFMA into your own practice. And for a limited time, we'd like to offer our podcast listeners a special rate for this SFMA virtual training experience. Follow the link in the show notes and use promo code VERT22 at checkout for $50 off your virtual SFMA Level 1 or Level 2 certification courses. That's V-I-R-T-2-2. And if you bundle them at checkout, you'll save an additional $220 automatically. We look forward to you joining us. Now back to the show. So really, it doesn't matter which bucket you put yourself into, overstressed or under-recovered, right? As long as you have some way to measure where you are. Right. Now, whether that's a wearable or whether that's just checking your balance or checking your grip strength. Or in our case, maybe it is checking a leg raise or even your toe touch, right? If you can't touch your toes when you get up in the morning and you were able to last night, then you have... A situation where you're either overstressed or under-recovered, and until you take action on that, then you need to maybe alter what you plan on doing as far as your workout is that day. It is. It is. And, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because when people say they're overstressed, most of them aren't saying, I ran an ultra marathon or laid block today, <laughs> right? I, I'm not a, a brick mason. I mean, I haven't been doing labor all day. What they're talking about is everything from social media to relationships to work stress, you know, all that kind of stuff. My point is, we came from a long heritage of humanity that had about as much mental, emotional, psychological stress as it did physical stress. And a great way to work off the stress in your head is to use your body. <laughs> it just is. And, and if you match your stress levels, your physical, emotional, social you end up dumping a lot of that aggregate tension that just accumulates over four days of doing the thing in the cubicle, whatever. And I want people to realize <clears throat> that even though you get that endorphin effect when you go do the boot camp in the park, that's not the kind of physical way you need to dump your stress. That's just another, how can I say, um, you're just stressing another system way more than it should. So a lot of the exercises we're coming to now that are what I would call a global corrective strategy, not a local cor a local corrective strategy. Lee is doing the four things to to you know roll your calf and get your ankle mobility back. A global is this movement pattern shows me a better representation of your stress than any other, like leg raise, toe touch. That is posterior chain tension. A bad push-up, bad rotary stability, you can't find your core, right? So there are all these signatures out there. I just got to figure out what's the lowest dose, 
where I can unburden that thing and dump the inappropriate tension. Because we always want to make more tension, not dump well, it. Well, and, and I think the assumption, and I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit, the assumption is your workout, in our, in our world of fitness performance, your workout is what's creating the stress. And you got to, before I do another high-end workout, I got to make sure I fully recover. Well, it's not always about the workout you just did. It could be other things in your life that's creating it. And one example I like to talk about in, some of the cor- in, in one of the courses is way back when, when I was at the high school and when I was at the university working with athletes, mainly the university, is I would always see the first two weeks of the freshmen coming back, and never, not even freshmen, but mainly the freshmen, coming into the university, and now they're going to play football, volleyball, whatever. Common. First two weeks, hip flexor strains, groin strains. Common. Every year, no matter what. Freshmen, they're going to come in, complain about their hip flexors and groins. Now, what did I do? Did what every good athletic trainer does. Throw them on some stem, do some stretching, put some ace wraps on them, throw some ice, done. I mean, that's you're talking back 10, 15 years ago. And, of course, they got better as, as the season went on. And then all the, what's the assumption of their problem? The assumption is, well, they're freshmen. They haven't trained like this and blah, blah, blah. Never once did I even consider their 18-year-olds leaving home, not having their parents, not having their significant others, being thrown into a new environment, staying up too late, not hydrating, and, of course, not eating right. So I could now, knowing what I know, make a better argument. It had nothing to do with the practice and the training that we're doing. It probably had a lot more to do with the lifestyle being changed, their total environment being upended. And again, you throw on top of that, now they're training and not maybe recovering. But there's a big piece that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk talking about recovery. No, I, <clears throat> and, and, and being aware of those stressors is important. The second thing is, what, did, what was the coach doing just on the other side of that poor recovery situation? The coach immediately recognized, oh, nobody did anything over the summer. I got to get them in, you know, eight weeks of shape in two weeks, right? So we're going to run more, and that's going to be punishment for what you didn't do this summer. It doesn't work out that way. They're going to be at their greatest fatigue point right about the first game. Now, I ran into that problem two different ways. One with an NL, NFL team a few years back with, after a lockout, all the teams were coming in late. And we knew the knee-jerk reaction of most of the coaches is we got to get these guys fit. We got to get them in shape. We knew wind sprints were coming. We knew a lot of running was coming. And if, if you're not ready for it, shin splints, low back pain, hip flexors, hamstrings, it's coming. But in both these situations, we had a hill to work with. My daughter's soccer team and the NFL team, two different times, bear crawls on a hill. All right? You bear crawl up the hill, you back down the hill. If you ever get so fatigued you want to stop, you got to turn around and do a deep squat facing downhill. Everybody's got a heel lift. So we're getting a lot of core and groin um, lineup. We're breaking a lot of that high abdominal tone. We're letting those hips breathe a minute, and we're getting those ankles done. So bear crawls, believe it or not, if you're wearing a heart rate monitor, bear crawls will induce the same cardio that wind sprints will with no impact, a lot of core engagement and built-in ankle and hip mobility. And so I knew my daughter's soccer. Right, how does that, how does that 
impact stress recovery? It well, at the exact same time your athletes were in a poor recovery situation, the coach made a decision, I'm going to dump more stress on them. So we had both problems going on simultaneously. Right, it goes back to we could have picked better workloads, and right. you better believe we could have sent them home with these are the don'ts. <laughs> right, but I think, but we all, we all again. I think the point I was trying to make is we also have to consider the things outside of their practice. Oh, exactly. You exactly. can give you can give them bear crawls, but if they're staying up and not hydrating, bear crawls aren't going to have that big of an impact. Right. If if they're doing the right thing, bear crawls would have been the smart play because. The the there are a few of those kids that might have been actually recovering well, but they were running way more than that. There was sure. too steep a gradient. So what I'm trying to do is earmark my exact recovery problems. Yes, but you have to check all of these other factors. You do, and you have to figure out which where where is the bottleneck because you can give them bear crawls, but the the 15 kids that are staying up playing video games and drinking beer on a Sunday Saturday night, Monday night for that matter, are not going to respond well, and they're still going to be overstressed or under-recovered. Yep. And, and, and really, it comes down to awareness and education. If, if, if you realize, I mean, most athletes realize, if my lifestyle is making me lose, that's when I have to change my All lifestyle. All right, but I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> How do we do that in a, right, you know, in a, say, high school football team where they don't have wearables? Professional sports, even the military, the elite military, everybody's got wearables. But you go to a typical high school or a, a small university, they don't have those things. Or even, you know, if I'm, if I'm training, a, if I'm doing group training in the park, yep. what are some things that we can do to figure that out? Well, at physicals, we used to ask kids, do they have any pain? And what do kids say? No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm ready to go. And then we started doing movement screens. The, the fail rate um, for pain in movement screens for a, a group that had been cleared with a pre-participation physical, it's about 20%. I think you were quoting some statistics uh, to me the other day, said it's closer to 30% now. So when you ask people if they're in pain in a survey, and when you screen people who have pain in normal range of motion, all right, hold on. At I'm one gonna, body I'm, again, I'm, I'm going to pick at this one a little bit. All right. I'm going to do a group workout in the park on Saturday. Yep. Saturday morning, eight o'clock. 10 people are going to show up. How do I know which ones are? under-recovered, or overstressed, that may not be appropriate for the workout I'm going to give them. What are some simple things you can do? Well, first thing I'd do is see how many people could actually deep squat and how many of those deep squats were comfortable. Yeah. How many people can touch their toes? How many people can stand on one foot and look left and right without falling so some over? Base, right. Base, touch your toes. Balance on one foot. Which, one, which of those 10 people can, you know, can't even stand on one foot. No. And so what we get down to is the two words that you and I have been using in military and pro for a while is risk and readiness. And if, if you have a problem right now, right, if you have pain in one of these movements right now, you're not even ready. That's just the best way to say it. You're not healthy enough to do what we're getting ready to do. Yeah. So risk is real. You're done. Risk is off the table. Yeah, risk is off the table. You're not even ready for us to train you. Now, risk, because there's two people that that are in the park. One can't deep squat, but they could last week, and they've been partying hard, and their low back is tight, their groin is out. I mean, they've slept in the wrong position. And one never had the deep squat to begin with. The one who doesn't have the deep squat 
has been this dysfunctional for a long time. They'll probably make it through the workout, but they got long-term risk if they don't address that. The one who has a squat and it ain't available today, you're not even ready because you're not bringing what you think you're bringing. Your body's here, your function ain't. So, Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of, I would argue the person who is not ready, and again, I don't, don't quote me on the research here, I'm just giving you my little thought, is going to get injured before the person who doesn't have a squat. Right. Because they think that they are ready. Right. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. And hey, 18-year-old confidence covers up a lot of problems. And, and we've all been there and we've all had that. But I really think that it has been refreshing because as much as we have had debates about movement screening when we're on stage, when we're on panel discussions, when we have professionals that may not like our version of the screen or the way we do it, the reward comes when the athlete gets it. We did a simple battery of tests, and we showed you what can change and what can't change by doing a simple battery of correctives and maybe taking a little bit of advice on how to come back better. And so the movement screen has been a more rewarding vehicle for me to manage people with than it has been to debate on stage. Because if you don't use it, you've learned to build houses without a, a, a hammer. Great. I'm glad for you. We use a hammer and things go a lot quicker. You know, I'm not going to debate you why you're getting great results not doing a movement screen. Maybe you just got a good intuitive eye for movement and you're fixing it anyway. I don't, I don't require everybody to do the movement screen. I'm just saying if I were to come and close down your gym and screen everybody in here or pull your team off the side and screen everybody in here, I'd like to think I'm going to see better than average results, not worse than average results, because that's the only pass I'm going to get you for not laying down the baseline ahead of time. And bottom line is, let's not, you know, at the end of the day, you have to stress the system. You have to push them to the limits and beyond if you want to progress. Yeah, that's called adaptation. And we know that, that, that appropriate stress will cause that. But the, the flip side, it's the yin-yang thing. If you've got a lot of stress and not a recovery, you won't see the adaptation. If you're well-recovered but you don't push the limits, you won't see adaptation. So it's, it's that delicate balance. And I think it's good for us to all just argue this or that. But once again, back around to where we started, we found that the movement signature we get from screening whole movement patterns and balance literally is the canary in the coal mine. If, if you party too hard, we'll see it on your movement screen, whether you tell us you did or not. And if you've got long-term problems, we're going to see it on your movement screen, whether you tell it or not. And, and so and, and it's different than exercise testing, strength testing, or anything like that, because your fundamental movements, they're, they're running on a program that you don't control. If your deep squat is limited at parallel and you can't go deeper without popping your heels up, there's no thought I can implant in your brain that's going to get you six more inches. But there's something I can do in the next six minutes that might. Right. And so these basic little things, whether it's balance, whether it's touching your toes, um, these basic little things can be a way to determine your stress recovery level. If you, if you don't have access to all these wearables that some of the higher level individuals have, they, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that doesn't mean you can't exercise. It doesn't mean this person showing up at the park that's, you know, overstressed, under recovered because they went out and stayed up too late last night. They need to sweat. They need to get after it. You may just need to alter a little bit about what they do. Yep. And in the word function, 
basically says how you're functioning, how your parts are working together, how your patterns are behaving. When we first introduced the movement screen, I honestly look back now and I think a lot of people thought we were making structural calls, right? When we said you got tight ankles, there were a lot of people in the audience that were thinking through all the ankle structures like the Achilles tendon, the gastroc, the soleus, the cuboid, and just different anatomical restrictors that could make you have poor ankle movement. Like, no, I just think you got too much posterior chain tone. Both are true. And so if you truly have a functional problem, then you've got to focus on stress recovery and you've got to figure out a test retest that'll let you know if you're jacking them up or making them better. And these simple little movement tests aren't just there to help us find structure. We can find structural problems because if you can't move, we're going we're gonna to find out why. But so many times, just like you said at the Wizard of Oz, you pull back the curtain, there's nothing there, right? When I evaluate this guy's back and hips, there's no reason he shouldn't be touching his toes. Yet when he stands up and tries to touch his toes, eh, there is a functional parking brake somewhere in him He might have got bit with low back pain. His balance and weight shift may be off, but it's just not there. And so I think a lot of times when we first start talking movement screen, people want to take the conversation to an anatomical part or or a body part instead of just saying, no, you just don't use that pattern well and you've avoided it for a while. But why do people have that movement signature? A lot of times it's a protective response. Right. And unless you know what it's protecting, you better not take it away from them. That's right. So when you take that person who can't touch their toes and you take them through a kick-ass workout, that's risk. That's risky because they, they are using that inappropriate strategy for a reason. And part of what we have to do is figure out why. Yeah. And, and take, take one of our movement screen uh, tests, the most fundamental one, the leg raise. When you see somebody who's only doing an active straight leg raise at about 65 degrees, that means any kick, stride, or step that they would do beyond that on a single hip basically makes their lumbar flex inappropriately in an active movement. So you don't want that many lumbar flexions. You know, yeah. Yeah, you, can get, you can get away with it for a little while. And the younger you are, the more you can get away with it. The older you are, the less you can get away with it. Right, right. So, no, I, I just think when we're, when we're talking function, if you go all the way back to the, the headwaters of a functional problem, they are overstressed. And if they're overstressed in a non-physical way, we got to dump that tension. If they're overstressed in a physical way, we got to make sure that they get that movement pattern back before we stress it again. A good, good example of that are the hamstring strengths. People say tightness in hamstrings, right? You hear it all the time. My hamstrings are tight. Hamstrings are tight. I pull my hamstrings. Your hamstrings are overstressed. Yes. And what we usually see is muscles like hip flexors and hamstrings that get strained a lot are actually more superficial muscles that are probably considered by most kinesiologists prime movers. When your prime movers have to do dual duty as a, a, as a moving muscle and a stabilizing muscle, they can do it for a little while. But when you got two employees and one sits on a bench and one is working double shifts, the one that breaks down is not your bad employee. It's the asshole sitting on the bench. And what we see is a lot of your pelvic floor, uh, think sports hernia, 
Um, you know, think low back pain, think the muscles that stabilize the sacrum, think about the multifidus muscle, the TA, all these muscles should be maintaining alignment and integrity. So your hamstrings can just help you move forward. Well, and that's there, therein lies because what, what do people always gravitate to? Well, the glutes, the glutes, the glutes, the glutes aren't doing their job. The hamstrings are doing too much. Well, maybe, or it could be, you know, all the way through the entire kinetic chain. And, you know, don't let's not always blame the glutes because the hip flexors are are strained or the hamstrings are strained or the hamstrings are tight or the hip flexors are tight. Not always the glutes. It is a pattern and is a strategy. It is a brain problem mm-hmm. for the most part. It is. And so, you know, we we talk about getting their awareness of some of these factors in stress and recovery. And I would say keep it simple. The first time you talk to somebody about this, pick three of the the things that you know like diet, hydration, and sleep, okay? Add breathing in there because uh, if you know how to do breathing screens or if you've seen our breathing course, it's going to open your eyes because most people may be making the right exercise choices breathing wrong while they do it. I've seen a whole lot of people do a half good kettlebell swing with a very inappropriate breathing sequence. I know when when Pavel Tsetsulin, Strong First teaches, breathing's a big part of it, but it's a big part of martial arts and yoga too. And I see a lot of people obsessing on the move and not matching the breath. One of the best things we can do, especially in corrective exercise, is match that breath with a corrective movement. You're getting a two for one. You're basically exercising their breathing system. And since most meditation, yoga, and relaxation makes us resync our breathing too, why not resync your breathing with a movement that is yeah i think the stat right now Greg, and i'm going to be conservative when i throw this out there over 60 percent of the people right now population have breathing problems yeah that's not going to bode well in the next pandemic either no but but if you're think about this there are breathing exercises and there are physical exercises and when we blend breathing exercises uh, with physical exercise, it's a different breathing sequence. You're, you're biking, you're paddleboarding, you're doing Indian clubs, you're doing uh, martial arts. There, there's a different breathing sequence for each of these things, but knowing the one that suits you um, makes a world of difference. I mean, think about swimming. I never got my breathing right in swimming. Makes a world of difference when you get your strokes and breathing down. And so I think that that this is a great place to to, to wind this up. When we're looking at stress recovery, the thing that'll kill you first is breathing. Let's let's make sure we all have a few ways to screen that. Believe it or not, the one that'll kill you next is hydration. And you lose a lot more uh, water uh, through your breath than you do your sweat and your pee. So once again, if you got bad breathing, you're probably blowing off a lot of your hydration. The so next, br- br- I'm sorry, Greg. Breathing is an easy one to check. Pee, uh, your urine, <laughs> is it clear or is it yellow? It ain't supposed to look like iced tea. That's yeah. what I'm, uh, and sleep, okay? Now, I'm not even at food yet. I'm at breathing, hydration, and sleep. And these are major influences on your neurological system, and therefore they're major influences on your movement system. The last one's going to be nutrition. And if your BMI is not good, then I already know you're making nutritional mistakes, not just activity mistakes. But at the same time, Get the anti they get the inflammatory foods off board. You know what bad food is and good food is. And if you got to open a package to get to it, it's not as good as if you peel something to get to it. So that's 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 all about that. But we're not going into major things. Pick some things like this. One of those four things I mentioned 
is going to be a key factor in almost everybody you you train. Everybody's going to have an Achilles heel on recovery, and everybody's not going to understand something about the way they are stressing themselves constructively. Find one thing in each of those and work on them, and the result will be way better than twice as good because they'll complement each other. That's why they call it a cycle, the stress recovery cycle. Nice. (laughs) That will do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.